Good morning. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We're going to finish off the second chapter of Titus today. And I want to apologize ahead of time because I am a little bit sick. I will try to avoid sneezing or coughing into the microphone. So as you turn to Titus, I do want to just share with you how excited I am to teach this passage specifically. Um, You know, last week I mentioned that some passages are not very much fun to teach, and that was one of them. Well, this is one that's a lot of fun for me to teach. It's just got some some really cool stuff in it. Um, I'm really excited to to work through it. So if you're at Titus 2, we're going to be reading from verses 9 through 15. Let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll read the text. Lord, I thank you for this day and for this congregation. I pray that as we dig into the truth of your word, that you would bless us with an increased knowledge of who you are and increased desire to serve you. Give us the faith to believe what we know and help us and bless us as we allow your truth to change our lives. Help us to understand your word now. Amen. So Titus 2, verses 9 through 15. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So last week we learned from Paul's directions to Titus that each group of people he talked to was supposed to act in a particular way. The first two verses here are kind of a continuation of that thought, but they're addressed towards more of a general group. Slaves, bond slaves. So... uh, We also see this week with a little bit more clarity the reasons for those commands that Paul gave last week, that we saw last week, um, and the main themes of the book of Titus that we've learned, salvation and sanctification, come up really, really prominently in this passage. So let's just jump straight into the text and go for it. So verse 9, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything. Anytime we see the language of slavery used in the Bible, it's really important to make sure we have a a right conception of it. it. This is not what we know from our own history, the evil of slavery in America. This is this is a different thing. Um, slaves at the time of Paul could have been people who uh, people who needed to pay a debt, so they sold themselves into slavery. It could have been people who were captured in war. It it uh, slavery at the time was not nearly as much of a degrading or dehumanizing thing. Instead, a slave could still hold a position. They could still be someone who's respected in their community. And so when Paul writes to bond slaves, he's not saying that slavery is a good thing or that he's not condoning it. He's acknowledging that slavery existed, and he's writing to a specific group of people. And so because of this, when we see the term slave, it's really helpful to kind of bring it into a modern light and kind of understand how we can read these instructions and apply them to our day-to-day lives. And a modern parallel could be people in the workplace. It's not quite the same, but there's a lot of similarities. 
And so with that understanding, a lot of these instructions make sense. It says, be subject to your own masters. Um, this is a willing subjection. Um, it's the same word. I mentioned it last week. Uh, it came up last week as well. It's the same word that's used in a military context. A military man subjects himself to his master, to his, to his commanding officer. But I do want to dig into this, like, this idea of subjection a little bit more. And so I'm going to do that by turning, uh, turning to Ephesians chapter 6. It'll be towards the front of your Bibles. And in Ephesians 6, Paul says a little bit more about slaves. He says a little bit more about masters. And it'll help clarify what this kind of submission looks like. So Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. Let me go ahead and read that. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ. Not by way of eye service, as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service, as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both your master, their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So the first thing we see here is that slaves are to have a pure heart, a sincere heart. Paul doesn't want them just to behave rightly without concern for their attitudes. He's concerned with the way they're thinking. He's concerned with making sure their motive is to please God. This reminds me of a couple summers ago, I was working at a campground up in Big Bear. And I had this one coworker, man, you could not get this guy upset. We'd go from putting kids on the zip line, he was cracking jokes with them, and then two hours later we were cleaning toilets and he was still just as happy, making just as many jokes. And the reason for that is that he had this attitude towards his work that didn't matter what exactly he was doing, he was doing it for a purpose. And that's kind of what Paul's talking about here, this idea of having the right attitude when you're, work, when you're working. You work as to the Lord and not to men. And verse 7 makes that really clear. This passage also gives some instructions to masters, which we don't see in Titus, but they are important to know because those instructions are implied there. And we see that God is the master, both the slave and the slave master, and this means that there is no partiality with God. Go ahead and turn back to Titus, and let's unpack the rest of the requirements here for, for bond slaves. And so back in Titus 2, verse 9, we see there's a requirement to be well-pleasing. And so to bring this to our context, if you're employed, this could be, this means you know what your employer needs, you know how to do it. You know how to accomplish what your employer wants from you. This might be as simple a thing as just knowing all the procedures you have to follow and doing everything, even if it's annoying, you're checking off all the boxes, even if you don't feel like it. It could mean going above and beyond the call of duty and exceeding expectations. But in any case, this phrase, well-pleasing, excludes any sort of laziness or poor, sloppy work. The next thing we see, they're not to be argumentative. And argumentative refers to people who just constantly talk back. They don't respect authority structures. 
And Paul says, no, don't be like that. The next thing is they're not supposed to be pilfering. Pilfering is a word we don't hear a whole lot today, but it just refers to stealing, usually on a smaller scale. And the uh, best example I can think of this is uh, I work in an office environment back in Chicago. I work doing tech support. And my work provides all sorts of different office supplies, you know, pens, paper, notebooks, you name it. And those are so that when I'm working, when other people are working with me, we can do our jobs effectively and we don't have to bring our own supplies. I've had a couple of times, though, when I was at work and I had to go straight from work to class and I forgot to bring a notebook and a pen. So I had nothing to take notes on. And so in that minute, in that moment, it's really, really easy for me to say, oh, well, it only costs them like 50 cents for this, this piece of paper and pen. But this is what Paul's telling him not to do. He's saying, don't do that. Slaves would have been in a position where they could have very easily stolen little things on a regular basis. And he's saying, don't do that. The principle is honesty. And so then the last thing that Paul says, and this is really important, he tells slaves to show all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. And so what does this idea of showing all good faith even mean? At its most basic level, it means that slaves or you in the workplace need to show your faith by your actions. And this is the same command that all Christians were given just a few verses earlier, like we, were, we learned last week, uh, that the reason for living like this is to make the gospel attractive. We see in verse, verses uh, 7 and 8 that we're to show ourselves to be an example of all good deeds with purity and doctrine. And we see the so that statement. So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And here, it's a little bit of a twist. So that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Let's unpack that a little bit, because that's a really big statement. First, what is this doctrine of God our Savior? Um, I mentioned already we learned a little bit about the themes of salvation and sanctification. As it turns out, these are the exact things that Paul's referring to. Um, Paul puts an emphasis on the saving work God has done by calling it the doctrine of God, our Savior. And what we'll see in a minute is that all these things are the foundation of the way that Christians are supposed to act. The foundation of what Christians are supposed to believe and the foundation of what Christians, how Christians are supposed to act. And so, with an understanding of what this doctrine is, we can begin to understand what Paul means when he says that we're to adorn that doctrine in every respect. The word adorn is really interesting. It comes from the same root word that we get our word for cosmetics from. And it refers to this idea of making something attractive, making it look good. And we see that tying back to verse 8. Look at verse 8. They'll have nothing bad to say about us. So we know that the gospel is not always what the world wants to hear. The world doesn't want to hear the gospel. But what Paul's telling us here is that we need, to make the, we need to make the gospel look good by our actions. We need to live in such a way that the world looks at us and says, there's something different about them. What's, what is it that's different? And that's what he's talking about here. And so once Paul establishes this requirement, he can then move into an explanation of what these doctrines are. Salvation, sanctification, what are these things? 
This is really important stuff. So I want you to listen carefully. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The first thing we see is that it has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. And so it has appeared, which means that we have not sought it out. We have not found it. It has appeared. It's a really important distinction. And so this appearing refers to the coming of Christ at his birth. And you notice, uh, like I said, Paul doesn't say we found it. Doesn't say that we've successfully sought it out. God found us. And you don't have to turn there, but we can learn from passages like Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 5, that we were dead in our sins. We cared only about the desires of our heart and our minds. But God made us alive in Christ through the riches of his mercy and his grace. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about here in Titus. The grace of God has appeared. And he says what the appearing of the grace of God has done. There's a number of things that this appearing has done. The first one is that it has brought salvation to all men. It says bringing salvation to all men. And I do want to be clear, this is not the doctrine of universalism, which says that all people will eventually come to, to, to be saved. That's not what's going on here. Instead, this is referring to the idea of salvation being offered as a free gift to all people. God has provided the means by which each person may be saved if they believe in him. In John 14, 6, you don't have to turn there. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this point is really critical. Don't think you can slide through. You must believe. Like I said, this is the first thing that the appearing of the grace of God does. It offers salvation to all. And so Paul launches next into several more things that the appearing of the grace of God does. So all of these things fall under the blanket term of sanctification. The first thing that I talked about, the appearing of the grace of God, bringing salvation to all men, that's salvation. We're going to talk about sanctification now. So remember, sanctification is the work that God does in a Christian's life to bring them to him, to make them more like him, so that they can walk in holiness, they can walk in purity. And the very next thing we see is that the grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. The word used for instruction here is different from the word which would normally be used in this context. It has an idea of the way you'd instruct a small child. Discipline. And this is the way the grace of God instructs us. We see this in a little bit more detail in places like Romans 5 and the beginning of Romans 6. Go ahead and turn there with me. And let's understand a little bit more clearly what the instruction of the grace of God does for us. This is Romans, the end of Romans 5 and then Romans 6 as well. <clears throat> And I'm going to go ahead and read from Romans 5.20 through 6.2, and then I'll also read verses 14 and 15. Romans 5.20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And so we see here, Paul says, sin increased, but grace increased all the more. Grace is giving instructions for how to deal with sin. Here's the important part. Verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? He's saying, if sin increases and makes grace increase, should we sin more so that there can be more grace? And he says, absolutely not. Many translations will translate this and they'll say, God forbid. This is the strongest way Paul could say this. Chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. And so what we see here is that grace calls us to deny sin, to deny ungodliness. You can turn back to Titus. Titus 2.12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And the idea behind denying is it's a sharp turn. You turn away from sin. You turn away from ungodliness and away from worldly desires. And the terms ungodliness and worldly desires, I want to be clear, they refer to what Paul has just talked about with false teachers. Is there not just things that happen in the world? Paul is making a sharp distinction between what is sinful and what is not sinful. And so he's referring to things that are sinful by definition or things that the world tells you to want in a way that is wrong. So for example, it's not wrong to be wealthy. There's nothing at all wrong with that. God has used many wealthy people throughout the ages to advance the kingdom. But if you have an inappropriate desire for wealth, or if your wealth is used in wrong, like if you use your wealth in the wrong way, that's worldly desires. That's ungodliness. That's what Paul's talking about. And so the next thing, once we've denied ungodliness and worldly desires, the grace of God instructs us how we should then live. So we see three individual commands here in verse 12, along with a statement of time. It says, in the present age. And this is actually super interesting. This is a Greek idiom. Uh, if you could translate it very woodenly, it would be in the now time. And the point is that Paul is saying, do this now. He's saying, don't think about this and do it later. Do it now. Deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and instead live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So remember that word sensible from last week and the week before. Really, really important. It's this idea of doing the right thing at the right time, doing what is appropriate for the situation. Righteously refers to doing what is right before God, what is objectively right and matches his standards. And godly refers to being respectful and reverent towards God. And all these things encapsulate what it is to be a mature Christian. We learned about that last week and the week before. And Paul is affirming that. Again, he's restating it. He's saying these are the things to do at, as a mature Christian. And all these things, again, fall under the category of what we call sanctification. God wants every single Christian to live this way, denying ungodliness, denying worldly desires, living sensibly, righteously, and godly. 
And again, he wants it now. That's what Paul is emphasizing here. And so in the third and final way in which the grace of God instructs us is in our expectations for the future. Look at verse 13. It says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So we see first we are to look for this blessed hope. Now I do want to stop for a second and say, you see the word appearing again. We just saw the word appearing back in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. These are two different appearings. The first one, remember, is the birth of Christ. The second one is his second coming. The appearing we're talking about in verse 13 is the second coming of Christ. And so when the passage calls it a blessed hope, that's because it's what we look forward to. It's what we expect. We look forward to it with great joy. And so the commandment to look is a commandment that comes with an idea of an active or state of being. This is not just look out in the future and see it. This is you are eagerly, you're scanning, you're looking for it. And Paul uses language of certainty here. We know this hope is coming. We expect it because we know it. It reminds me of my life as a college student. Every semester, I know that I'm going to have lots and lots of papers to write, tests to take, late nights, early mornings, days when I have to go to work instead of doing homework, and I have to make up for that later, than, later in the day. But you know what? Every single semester, I know that finals week is coming, and at the end of finals week, I'm done. I'm done with the semester, and I get a break. And so I look forward to and I expect the end of finals week. And this is a very similar thing to what Paul's talking about here. This expectation of what is to come. And another point I want to make, Paul is very careful in this verse to call Jesus Christ our great God and our Savior. And so I don't want to get too technical here, but there is a rule of Greek grammar that makes it really, really clear that this is Jesus Christ right here he's talking about. He's not talking about God and Jesus Christ. He's talking about Jesus Christ. He is our God, our great God, and our Savior. And the point and the reason I bring this up is because this is a great text to point to to say, no, Jesus Christ is God. And there are people who will deny that. People will say, no, Jesus is not God. But you can point to this text. Jesus Christ is God. There's no doubting. And so the phrase appearing of glory, I'm sorry, this is a huge part. The fact that Jesus Christ is God is a huge part of why we look forward to his return, this appearing of glory. And that phrase, appearing of glory, ties back grammatically to what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 5. Flip there for a second. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Remember from the first day, the first week that I preached, I said this is one of the theme verses of the book of Titus where Paul explains to Titus what his reason for sending him or leaving him in Crete was, so he would set in order what remains. This is what Christ will do when he returns. The appearing of his glory will be a cosmic setting in order of what has been broken by sin, of what has been damaged by our failure. This is our hope. And so Paul goes on to explain in even greater detail the role that Christ played 
during his time on earth. Christ gave himself for us. Verse 14. He gave himself for us. It reminds me of Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. You don't have to turn there. It says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says there that normally for a sinner, nobody would want to take, to take their place and take the death penalty for them. But maybe if it was a really, really good person, you'd give your life for them. And he says, we were sinners, depraved and evil, and Christ died for us. This is the single greatest display of love that the world has ever known, has ever been known to mankind. And I don't want to lose the weight of that. This is huge. Christ gave himself, we see, to bear our sins upon himself and to redeem us from every lawless deed. The word redeem here has a dual dual meaning. The first one is it refers to a buying back or a ransoming. Of mankind. This is what Christ has done to allow us salvation so that we can come and enjoy eternity with him in heaven. And in this case, it's showing the great lengths that God has gone to in order to save us. But the second thing we see is that not only has Christ redeemed us in this way, he's also purified us for his own possession. And this is the secondary meaning of that word redeem. He has paid the penalty for our sins and redeemed us from eternal punishment. But he has also redeemed us from the weight and the burden of our sins today. And so I want you to know, this is what we talk about when I, when I say sanctification, this is what I'm talking about. Christ has redeemed us from our sin. And this is not, this is not sinless perfection. We will never achieve that while we're on earth. So don't, don't hear that from me. What it is instead is, as we go forward in our Christian lives, as we continue to grow in Christ. Our lives are more and more characterized by righteousness and holy living and less and less characterized by sin. I had a class last summer. It was a three-week class. Normally, it's a full semester-long class, but this one was condensed to three weeks. Um, it, was, it was hard. Um, and I remember a lot of things from that class. But one of the things that I remember the most vividly is a professor's explanation of sanctification, this idea that I'm talking about. And I'm going to shamelessly steal it from him. I'll give him credit. His name is Dr. Zuber, Dr. Kevin Zuber. I got, that's where I got it from. Um, he said, sanctification is not just a steady climb up to perfect living. Sanctification is little up, lots of down, little up, down. And sometimes it feels like you take two steps, two steps up and you fall four steps down. But he said, over time, as you continue to walk with Christ and grow and be faithful to the word, you, what you'll notice is that your, your low points when you fall are still higher than your, your old high points were. And that's the idea that we've got here with sanctification. It's not that you're going and you're going to be perfect. It's instead that as you go on, as you are faithful to Christ, as you continue to grow, he makes... He helps you to sin less. 
and to be pure. So when we understand this correctly, we can understand what it means to live according to the behavioral standards that Paul set up for Christians. Christ has purified for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And this is another aspect to sanctification. As we sin less, we desire to do what is good. We desire to do what is right. And we see that affirmed here in verse 14. And so now in verse 15, we see Paul drawing a conclusion. He's drawing an end to this chapter. He says, these things, what things? All the things we've just been talking about. Everything in chapter 2, the gospel, God's call on Christians to live rightly. And so each of the next three things he says are imperative words, meaning that they each carry the force of a strong command. He tells Titus to speak these things, meaning that his day-to-day conversations are to be characterized by the truths of this chapter. In our context, that might mean you run into someone at the grocery store and by the end of the conversation, they know that you're a Christian. Paul tells Titus, exhort these things. So this would fall under the category of preaching. And I do want to make sure you know, preaching is a lot of hard work. And I'm not saying this to make you feel sorry for me. Like I've, I've been preparing for this for three years. I enjoy studying and preaching the word of God. But it is a lot of work. I've been here at the church studying every single day this week. I was here until almost 11, just like practicing, running through the sermon, preparing to deliver it. But this is what's commanded of Titus. And the final thing Titus is commanded to do is to reprove. And this refers to correcting errors in love. We learned a lot about this last week. And the week before with reproving false teachers. This is a little different though. This is a call to Titus to reprove Christians. And this refers to, he, he wants Titus to reprove things that are false or wrong according to the Bible. I heard a quote actually from Gunner. He said, hold yourself to the highest biblical standard and everyone else to the lowest. And this is kind of what Paul's getting at here. And what he means by this, what that quote means, is that if you have a conviction on a particular topic, on a particular thing, hold that conviction, hold it firmly, and apply that to yourself. But don't look at your brother who doesn't have the same conviction and make him do the same thing. Hold him to the lowest biblical standard. Hold him to the biblical standard, for sure, but the lowest one possible. And the point is that we should not be calling out our brothers and sisters over every little disagreement or detail, but rather that we should use the truth of the word of God to build each other up, to lovingly respond to errors. And you see, Paul includes this little phrase, with all authority. That applies to all three of those commands, and it shows that he wanted Titus to know that he had authority from God and from Paul to do all three of these things. Paul knew that what he was writing here came from God. He knew that he wanted Titus to know that as well. And finally, we see the last phrase, let no one disregard you. 
Paul didn't want the people to disregard Titus because of who he was. And this actually ties in really well to what we talked about last week with older people and younger people and how Christians, older Christians are to speak into younger Christians' lives. So younger Christians, don't reject what your older, your older Christians, older Christian friends tell you just because they're older than you. Older Christians, be open and humble so that if a younger Christian reproves you, you're, you can listen to that. That's hard to do. That requires humility. And it also makes me think of me coming here and preaching to you all. Because many of you have been Christians longer than I've been alive. And many of you have a lot of experience that I don't have. But I'm really thankful that you have allowed me to come in and you have allowed me to preach. And so, as I conclude, I want to make sure that the weight and the glory of the gospel is clear in your minds. We know that the gospel is the truth that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and he rose again. And this is what saves us. We must believe this. We must know this. We must trust it. And when we know and trust Christ, we can grow in him. We can develop as mature Christians so that we become ever more like Christ. And so we are characterized by holiness. And this allows us to speak powerfully to an unbelieving world and to draw their attention to the gospel so that they may be saved. So I challenge you, let this be true in your lives. Be so consumed with the gospel that nobody can see you, nobody can talk to you without knowing that you are a Christian, that you believe in the one true God. Come to know the truths of the gospel so intimately that you can't keep them in that you overflow with the story of what God has done for you to redeem you from lawlessness. Be people of God who show his truth with your actions and your words. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love, which are so great that you would even sacrifice your own son on our behalf even while we were still sinners. We thank you that you have provided a way for us to draw close to you, not just so we can go to heaven, but so that you can purify us and cleanse us from unholiness and unrighteousness, and so that we can become more like you in purity and holiness. We confess that we are incapable of following and serving you rightly, so we ask that you would purify us, help us to deny ungodliness, and worldly desires, so that we may live lives that are sensible, righteous, and godly. And we ask all this in your name.